Welcome to the Weekly Movie Throwdown. I'm Mike Messinio. And I'm Steven Sigmund. And this week, we wrap up Jason Statham Month with a double feature that goes back to the beginning. Two movies with Jason Statham and director Guy Ritchie. Today, we're discussing 1998's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and 2000's Snatch. This was a really an interesting exercise. Um, I watched them back to back, and it was really cool to see Guy Ritchie grow between the first film and the second one. Uh, the stories aren't all that different, really, but the way they're told is is like more concise, uh, more visually developed in Snatch than than it was in Lock, Stock. Um, but it, I mean, Snatch is just executed on a different level, really, um, and it could just be the budget and the actors, but. Uh, it's really cool to see that experience because Lockstock was kind of proof of concept almost, I think. And then Snatch really, uh, the budgets were very different. We'll get into that, but um, it was really cool to see what was there as a kernel in Lockstock and then grow into what Snatch would ultimately be. Um, and it was cool to see Statham in early form, which, I would argue was maybe his best form before all the action got involved. Um, was that your experience with it? Yeah, there, there was a lot to go back and see in watching these two movies. And I haven't seen either of these in 20 years. So it was interesting to go back and see what Statham was. I mean, these were his first, basically his first two movies. He was friends with Guy Ritchie, who more or less discovered him and brought him in to the movie business. And what you see here is Statham with no traces of really where he would go. I mean, there's no signal here that he is a martial artist. There's no signal here that he is an action star. Uh, he's a fairly standard character. Uh, you know, within a Guy Ritchie movie, as standard as you can be, he kind of drives the story along. Uh, I mean, he does the voiceover for Snatch, for God's sakes, which is a, a, a fascinating thing to see now when we see how little he has <laughs> but um comical uh but a very pretty straightforward role where, where he plays it very straight and that was interesting to look back on um and you're right and watching these two movies back to back is almost how you have to do it as i was watching them i thought about kevin smith it, it was very similar in that idea where you make your first movie for almost no money. And then that movie becomes a success. And then you get more money to make almost the same movie, just with higher production values. And you can bring in better people and expand on the idea that you had, that you probably had originally, but just couldn't execute. Um, Guy Ritchie even talks about how he wrote Snatch with the extra pieces of what he had been writing with Lockstock. So the worlds are the same. The stories are, were taken from the same place. These are just all stories that are rolling around in his head. And I think he just took the extra ones, threw it into a storyline and then tried to find a through line, which ends up being the diamond. Um, so yeah, and, and I think Kevin Smith did a very similar thing. I think for Kevin Smith, it's more that he probably couldn't do more than that, which we'll kind of find out later. But in, with Guy Ritchie, he probably could do more, but I think he felt a lot more comfortable staying in this world, in this wheelhouse, and executing this as perfectly as he could before trying something on a larger scale. 
It reminded me a little bit of the Evil Dead too. Uh, evil with Sam Raimi's Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two, which are I don't even know that the budget was that much more, but they're still pretty much the same film. Um, what's your relationship with Guy Ritchie films? Are you are you a fan? I know you mentioned uh, a couple in past episodes, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on him in general. I think Guy Ritchie is very hit or miss. Uh, there are some movies he's made that I really enjoy, and there are others, as I mentioned in the last one where uh the operation fortune i wanted to enjoy and ended up really hating um aladdin we're gonna pretend never happened as i do with all of the disney live action remakes um we'll just forget those existed i enjoyed man from uncle a lot and was always hoping for a sequel for that which i still hear is a possibility Hmm. Uh, i really enjoyed that movie i enjoyed his sherlock holmes movies uh that's that's an acquired taste some people really really hated them and i understand why but um i really enjoyed his take on those thought they were fun uh, and um so yeah overall i like his work but definitely a few clunkers in there but but yeah i'm a guy richie fan good yeah i've i've been kind of like hit or miss with him myself i i like the sherlock holmes films too um but i really haven't paid attention to his career very much since snatch and uh it was fun to go back to his filmography and see a lot of the things that he did. Um, I feel like he's kind of been replaced with Matthew Vaughn at this point, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little more later, but uh, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, some of the things don't really speak to me, and I think that kind of happened early on, so I haven't paid attention very closely to what he does, Um, but I was excited to go back and watch these where it all started, and and, uh, I'm really glad that we did this because I think they're just uh, probably two of his best works and, and great, uh, just a great example of what you can do with a little bit of money uh, and some vision. So uh, I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah, I was going to talk about how this was almost a, a renaissance of a certain kind of filmmaker. Because what you're seeing here and in the few years previous is these video directors you know music videos became a really big thing in the 90s uh, high concept music videos and what you saw was a few directors that made the jump from directing music videos to directing feature films and i think that they brought a new language a new style of filmmaking again for better or worse depending on how you, you feel about the changes but i think they brought things different ideas, different styles, different filming techniques into feature film. I think you very much see that in Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels. But if you think about the, the directors that kind of started directing music videos in the early to mid-90s, who end up becoming directors, David Fincher being the obvious example, Spike Jones, uh, there was F. Gary Gray, Anton Fuqua, and even Michael Bay, to, to be honest. I mean, he's, he's in there as well. So... Uh, Michel Gondry is another one. So you, you have all these guys that kind of started directing music videos in the 90s when you could do anything. And, and it was kind of a wide open uh, place to just try out your art and test out different techniques. And then you find them bringing those into their filmmaking. Uh, Lockstock is definitely proof of that concept because you're seeing him use angles and you know, stop motion, not stop motion, but stopping the camera and speeding things up and all the things he uses there 
were things that anyone who watched a lot of music videos would instantly recognize as that style. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, kind of hand in hand with the directors and, and you're right. I mean, this is a time of, of video directors moving to features. Uh, the cinematographers too had a big hand in that. And the, the cinematographer who shot this, Tim Maurice Jones, uh, he also, also shot Snatch. Um, he comes from music videos as well. And I think he's kind of a part of bringing that style and uh, the two go hand in hand. And it's, it's really fun to watch. And it, it's really fun to see this time when what's on TV is translating over to the big screen. Really cool. Um, all right, well, let's, let's dive into the Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. It's from 1998. It is Guy Ritchie's first film, also Jason Statham's first film. Uh, and the story of it is that a guy loses a crooked card game. Uh, he's collected money from three of his friends to have a buy-in for this game. And uh, he loses, and all of them end up owing 500,000 pounds to a crime boss called Hatchet Harry. <laughs> the great names in these films, too. Um, and they have a week to pay him back. And they decide to uh, kind of make good by robbing their neighbors, who are a small-time gang um, they actually hear through the wall planning their own heist of a drug dealer. So that's kind of where the tone is set. And uh, there's a huge cast of characters. We won't go through all of them, but um, a lot of different storylines sort of moving in and out, a lot of different points of view throughout the film, uh, which made it really fun. And uh, yeah, it was, I had seen this, I think maybe once, and it wasn't until after Snatch. Um, it, honestly, it didn't appeal to me. So I had heard of it, but I had just kind of ignored it. Um, and really Snatch, what, what sold me, I'll be honest, is Brad Pitt. I mean, this, is, this comes out the year after Fight Club. So it's like peak Brad Pitt for me. Um, I watched on, Snatch. I'll interrupt and say it's peak weird Brad Pitt. See, yeah. that right, like 98, like 2001, he kind of decides that he wants to embrace his weird, which is my favorite Brad Pitt period. By Absolutely. Far. So that's what's, that's what's good about this. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, you know, he was a, a selling point for me. And uh, I did go back and watch Lock Stock, but I actually had, upon viewing it this time, I really had very little memory of seeing it the first time. It must have been like 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so I was almost seeing it through fresh eyes and I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by, um, how good it was. I mean, there are a lot of rough edges in it, but, uh, for the budget it had, which I think was, which ended up being around a million dollars, maybe, yeah. um, after a lot of people dropped out a lot of backers, um, but to put what he put together with that kind of money, uh, is, is super impressive. And it was a lot of fun. And it, it really spoke to him as a screenwriter too, because there's a lot in there. Um, and for a first time writer like that, it's, it's really quite a feat. Yeah. A few things here. And I, I think this is why it's always important when we talk about movies that you try to place them within the time period that they're being made. I mean, we see, you watch something like Lock, Stock, and Smoking Barrels now, or even Snatch. And in the subsequent 20 years, we've seen a lot of things that are similar to it. We've seen uh, not just in terms of style, but even when you go back and watch this originally, a lot of people complained that they could not understand what anybody was saying. 
And that was a huge <laughs> complaint when this first came out. And I, and I think that nowadays with all the streaming services and people watching foreign movies on Netflix and all these other things, it, it's something that people don't talk about as much. But back then, people hated this. Uh, they could barely understand what half these guys were saying. Uh, so he very much embraced a different style of English filmmaking. The other thing is when people think of English filmmaking, they'll think of period pieces and costume dramas and all those kinds of things. And he decided to bring a completely different energy of just street guys from London, which at the time wasn't being done all that much. So in some ways he revolutionized what the kind of filmmaking coming out of London or England could be. So it's important to, to think of it in, in those years, see how fresh it really seemed. And the way that the, the movie was filmed, uh, it was shot in you know, Super 16 film and then some digital and you can see it very grainy oh yeah a lot of people say not to buy it on blu-ray because the blu-ray enhances how bad it actually looks <laughs> right <laughs> better off just buying the dvd because it, it's mm -hmm. not as jarring but i mean they didn't have good lighting the the, the filmmaking techniques that they only were working with what they had but in a lot of ways it enhances the movie because the story itself is really gritty and showing you a side of, of london that you probably wouldn't be familiar with at least people like us. So I think it adds something to the movie. So for all yeah. those reasons, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. It's funny. You, you mentioned uh, that it's a, it's a different London for us. And, and I actually went there in uh, 2018, fully expecting it to be like snatch. And it, it absolutely was not. I mean, it's, this is sort of a microscope on top of a very particular area of London or a very particular group of people. And uh, I, I guess there's like sort of still a British energy. But when I went there, I was act actually kind of looking for things like this and not to be found where I was. So uh, that, yeah, it, it's very specific. Um, and I love that you mentioned the, the, uh, the language because I watched this as I watch most things with uh, closed captioning on and it just could not keep up. I mean, it was like half the words of dialogue that was actually showing up on the screen. So, and and surprisingly, uh, Brad Pitt's lines were fully intact, but everybody else was like half of what they're saying actually showed up in the closed captioning. I, I thought it was pretty funny. That was the absolute biggest complaint about Snatch. And the thing that I find most funny. I agree. People were furious that you got Brad Pitt involved in your movie and then give him dialogue that no one can really even understand. And they're like, what are you doing? Uh, and I don't know if that was on purpose. Uh, what, I, what I heard, uh, jumping ahead, you were trying to talk about Lockstock, but the character was originally going to be Irish, but the but Pitt couldn't really nail the accent. Uh, but they really wanted him in the movie, but it just wasn't working. And so they ended up changing the character to what he ends up being, more of a gypsy, so that they could just mess with the, the accent and the dialogue because if he tried to play straight Irish, it wouldn't have played as well. So that was a last second change to, and, and making him almost unintelligible. But people were furious that they couldn't understand what he was saying. Uh, going back and rewatching it, I actually found that for the most part, it was easy to understand. And maybe that's from years of watching Peaky Blinders. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's what really helped. I have to say, uh, if, if anybody who cast this film and was worried about Brad Pitt 
uh, didn't watch The Devil's Own from a few years earlier where he plays an Irishman with Harrison Ford as a co-lead, his accent isn't great in that. Um, so that's kind of like his audition. Um, if they spent time getting him to nail an Irish accent, that's time wasted, I think. <laughs> yeah, but, but in their defense, they realized that when Brad, because Brad Pitt, you know, we're jumbling all these together, but, but you were right in the idea that Lockstock was almost an audition movie where what it did is it opened doors into a larger Hollywood, which is why the people that were involved in Snatch are people that had seen Lockstock and New Smoking Barrels and wanted to work with him. So Brad Pitt contacted them and said, I'd like to be involved. Benicio Del Toro, the same thing. Uh, you know, you get Dennis Farina, you know, people that are now coming to him because they just enjoy his style of filmmaking so much. But from their standpoint, if Brad Pitt calls you up and says, I'd like to be in your movie, you figure out a way to get him into your movie, even though there was no part for him in that movie. So they kind of tried to wedge him into it. And, and that's why they, the character was in the Irish. They're like, try to let him do it. Didn't work. And then they had to try to fix it on the fly to try to get him into the movie because they knew that that's a one-shot deal. Yeah, and he, I, I mean, at that time, uh, you really wanted Brad Pitt in your movie. I mean, he was, he was kind of everywhere. Um, maybe we'll talk about Fight Club someday on here. I don't know, but uh, just like the mid to late '90s were really like peak Brad Pitt. So uh, he had a lot of heat. Um, of course, he did go, go on and make the Mexican after Snatch. So and I think that heat kind of fizzled. But uh, yeah, and and that, that just speaks that, that to me does fit with the larger idea of even going to do a movie like the Mexican, where he plays against type again where he plays kind of an idiot and a, a bumbling character which is also kind of subverting the the brad pittness of everything so so during this period of time you could see that he very much was wanting to mess with everyone's concept of, of the uh, matinee idol brad pitt type of thing and get back to his uh stoner character in, in uh true romance he was just trying to mess with things yeah you just took the words out of my mouth he, he wanted to be floyd again that's right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you uh, you mentioned the cast in Snatch and a handful of them are people from Lockstock. So there's kind of a Guy Ritchie troupe that's being formed uh, through Lockstock and and uh, one of them is Statham. And I think it's important to talk about him in this film. He It opens with him selling things on the street which is kind of true to life. That's what his dad did. That's what he ended up doing. And it really feels like an audition reel for him. Put him in this scene, let him do what he knows how to do. And that's how you open this film. Um, and he does such a great job. I was blown away by just how much dialogue he had <laughs> because I mean, we just watched The Beekeeper and we watched Crank. And I mean, there's very little <laughs> going on in those films dialogue wise. So seeing him in these and in particular in Snatch where, like you said, he narrates it. Uh, it's really cool. It's really cool to see kind of what he came from and what he actually can do that doesn't involve like hitting and kicking people. So uh, I love that. I love that about it. I, I was really happy to go back and watch it and, and sort of discover Jason Statham's uh, talents again. Yeah, it, I realized two things as I'm watching it. I mean, when he made lock stock i think he was probably around 32 so he'd already been modeling and uh other things and he ends up 
getting involved in this. Uh, so he was in the 30s when he started acting in films. Uh, so it, it's it's almost a road not taken type of thing because you see him in this and you can see him playing other parts, uh, more straight roles, dialogue heavy. It, it seems like he can carry that load, but he kind of goes a different route. But the other thing that I realized in watching this is that I guess Jason Statham never had hair. That's that's the other thing. Uh, I don't know when I don't know when he had hair. Possibly at fifteen, I'm not sure. But by his thirties, he was already uh, going bald. Yeah, but I think that makes him look cooler. I mean, it makes him look like he's in this role. Uh, we do see him in Spy for a minute in the club where he has a hairpiece on, and he's like unrecognizable. Um, he also has a, a long head of hair in the film London, but it, it's almost shocking to see him with hair. So uh, seeing him early on without it makes me feel like he's been on brand the whole time. And it's perfect. Like I couldn't see it any other way. So it is really cool. Um, it almost makes sense to just talk about both of these together, right? Like it's almost hard to to differentiate between them. I mean, we're trying to go one and then the other and it's just hard to do that because they're they're so intertwined much like the the stories in each of the films they feel like together they make two narratives into one so um i think that's probably what we should do going forward because we seem to be talking about snatch a little more anyway yeah i um, agree and then i think that even he speaks about them in that way like i said i watched an interview with him fairly recently where he went back and talked about these and and he treats them as almost of of the same through line uh, so so that that is fair to discuss them at the same time yeah and uh just i mean we've talked about brad pitt we've talked about uh jason statham but just the the level of talent in both of these films is is so incredible and uh i found it interesting that uh there's a guy in lockstock called barry the baptist his name's lenny mclean and in real life he was actually a bare knuckle boxing promoter um, and a bouncer who apparently killed someone when he was bouncing at a club one night. Um, but I'm wondering if his character or his his uh, vocation outside of the film led to the whole story of Snatch where Turkish, Jason Statham's character, is a bare knuckle boxing promoter. Um, but also, side note, uh, he had lung cancer while making this film and it metastasized to his brain. So from the time they finalized Lockstock to the time it premiered, he actually died, um, which is tragic. I mean, it's so sad. And he, he was such an incredible character in it. Um, along with that, everybody there, there are just so many great names in these films um, <clears throat> and, and great character names too. Like, <laughs> like, uh, Hatchet Harry and Bullet Tooth Tony, uh, Bricktop. I, I, it's it's just great writing and great characterization. Um, you didn't watch the the director's cut of Lockstock by chance, did you? No, no, I didn't. I, I like to stick to the theatrical ones. Yeah, the, it, apparently there's a another version that's like 15 minutes longer, which gives a little more backstory on a lot of the characters. Um, so it might be interesting to check that out as well, because as as great as they were, I mean, I feel like everybody, uh, and this is another testament to the writing, almost everybody in them could have their own movie. I mean, it could feel like this universe of of these characters. I, I mean, I'd love to see a Mickey movie, you know, just Mickey 
uh, in Snatch. And uh, it's just really cool. I mean, I can't stress how good the writing is, um, which I was very surprised by. I didn't remember Snatch being quite as good as it is in particular. Um, Yeah, you're you're right. What this is, the way he explains it, is that a lot of these stories, lines that he has in the movie were things that he'd heard hanging out in, in, I'll use pubs because that's the word he uses because they're in England. Uh, so hanging out in pubs, like he would hear all these stories from people. And that's where a lot of this stuff came from. So I think you may be right that a lot of these stories probably happened in some way, shape or form. There's a scene mm-hmm. in Snatch where uh, those guys try to try to rob the, um, where they, they set up a robbery and they can't get out. Oh, the bookie, the- yeah. Yeah, the bookie, they can't get out of the room because they're they're opening the door the wrong way. They're trying to pull it. You're supposed to push it. And, <laughs> uh, and he saw that in a news story, uh, that that had actually happened. So he put that in the movie. But so a lot of this stuff is stuff he either heard, read about, or just from hanging out with the people hearing these stories. So, uh, so, so that's certainly true. And then the other part, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that, that especially for Lockstock, because they were working with no money. Uh, probably to keep costs down, but also to make it seem more authentic. Half of the people in that movie were legitimate gangsters or unsavory people. So uh, that that's what gives the movie its authenticity. Yeah, and it works. I mean, it, it, it certainly, you certainly do get the sense that these people are sort of terrifying uh, in the way that they say they are. So uh, it's it's really good. One other thing is I mentioned the writing of uh, Lockstock, and I, I think it has a couple tonal issues. Um, it's kind of a little here and there as far as the tone goes, but I think that's nailed in Snatch. I mean, the humor is like perfectly balanced to the action, um, which I was really happy to see because I, I loved the inkling of it in Lockstock, but some of it felt a little hit or miss for me. But when I watched Snatch, I mean, and, and that goes to the acting too. The, like the like Farina, Dennis Farina in particular. I mean, that guy is like gold. He just brings that energy, and it's amazing. Yeah. So he mentions uh, Guy Ritchie mentions how one of his favorite movies around this period. He talked about influences, and of course, uh, we talk about influences. People will mention Tarantino to him uh, because they think that his style of filmmaking lends to Tarantino, but everybody around this time gets compared to Tarantino. But he had said that one of his favorite movies during this period of time was Get Shorty, which makes perfect sense. So he loves Get Shorty. And that's probably how he ends up casting Dennis Farina in this. Because if you're making a movie that involves gangsters or gangster adjacent and has a lot of F words, Dennis Farina is absolutely the guy you want in that movie. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and and Vinnie Jones too. He's terrific. Uh, so good in this. I do see a lot of Tarantino in particular in Lockstock. Um, there's even a scene where they there's someone hiding in a back room with a weapon when they're out in another room. I thought the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. it's just like the Alexis Arquette and Frank Wally scene in Pulp Fiction. Um, and then, of course, there's there's a very Reservoir Dogs feel to the whole thing. Um, but Guy Ritchie also cited The Long Big Sunday or The Long Good Sunday uh a bob hoskins film from 1980 has a big influence and i actually watched that recently and 
it plays like almost like an origin story for Bricktop or uh, uh, Hatchet Harry. It, it's Bob Hoskins. If you haven't seen it, plays this this uh, low level gangster who's really ascending in London and, and faces a lot of adversaries. Um, it's really good. So uh, that's a huge influence, and, and I really recommend that to everybody. Hey, it's it's the it's the Long Good Friday. Long Good Friday. What did I say? Long Good Sunday. Oh, <laughs> I just watched it too. You'd think I would remember. I keep getting it mixed up with the Long Goodbye, the the Altman film. Um, but yeah, so uh, a lot of influences here, and very much of the time for both of these. Snatch feels a little more to me like it's moving into the two thousands, where uh, Lockstock is very rooted in the nineties and that style of filmmaking. Um, and again, that could be the budget, could be the actors, but uh, they're both. Uh, I think it's both just, those things. I also think it's the confidence that, that you can see that that he's more confident in what he's doing. Even the opening sequence. I mean, the the opening sequences before the credits. And then tremendous. The role, I mean, that's a really impressive attempt that the opening sequence is filmed through security cameras. Yep. Which which is an inventive thing to do. Very cool. And then when you introduce each of the characters in a in a, a a freeze frame kind of splash picture and each yeah. one bleeds into the other one by connecting it in some way i mean that's a very music video kind of thing to do mm -hmm. but it's just someone that is very sure of what they're doing i mean that that's what comes through as opposed to Lockstock being someone's first movie he already looks very confident and sure of what he wants to do what he wants it to look like and and that that very much comes through in this one yeah, yeah, it it uh, such a great opening. Um, almost like a TV commercial in a way too, with introducing everybody or or like the opening to a TV show. Yeah, um, and smart because, like you said, these movies have so many characters. It's very hard to keep track of them, but kind of giving you the face and the name in in a in in the intro kind of helps you remember who they are because things get messy really fast. So yeah, it's very helpful actually to have these people's names and faces up front so you can go with it. It, it reminded me a little bit, and the names aren't there, and it's certainly a different style. But Boogie Nights in '97 opens with a tracking shot that goes into the Rodriguez brothers' club, and, and you know it's a single shot that moves around and introduces you to every character. Amazing. I mean, I think you need something like that when there are so many people involved, um, and in particular this uh, being. American and not having the language like really be something I can lock into without closed captioning. It's nice to see their names on the screen so that, so that I can remember them. I, I guess we should probably, we're saying how they're so similar. Um, even story-wise, they're very similar. But the but Snatch, because we haven't said it, is is a similar story based around bare knuckle boxing. And that is quite a crazy world. Um, you know, Brad Pitt plays the Mickey character, but I guess as far as you can have a lead, Jason Statham is the lead in Snatch. Um, he's narrating it. He's, you know, he's in most of it. Um, so it was quick to see him as a leading man. I know we keep getting back to him, but that's, you know, the point of this. So uh, it was really cool to see him sort of step up and, and take over. He, he had the same energy in Lockstock, but he really brought it to the forefront and and i think also uh his buddy tommy 
Stephen Graham's character uh, really sort of elevated him too, because he just gave him like a punching bag the whole way throughout, which was super funny. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk about Stephen Graham. And I, I think that, that this shows that Statham is really at his best when he has someone to play off of. Because uh, the two of them as, as a duo, I could have watched them all day just kind of working together. I think they had a great chemistry. But Stephen Graham, I actually forgotten was in this. Uh, when I think of him, I think of the run that he did as Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire, which was so good. I had no idea that he was British. He was so good at playing Al Capone. And then he also has a part in The Irishman that he's excellent in. I mean, Stephen Graham has kind of just found this uh, nice character niche where, where he plays a lot of heavies and, and hotheads, but uh, a lot of different various parts of it. And, and he's really an excellent actor. But I'd forgotten that he was in this because the character is so bumbling that I almost don't associate that with him anymore, which shows what a good actor he really is because he's good at playing kind of an idiot here. Uh, but his chemistry with Jason Statham is, is wonderful. Outside of Statham, uh, he might have the most solid career out of, uh, out of everybody in these films. I was thinking about that last night and Jason Fleming also, who played Tom in Lock, Sock, and then he was, uh, I don't remember his character name in Snatch, but he was Brad Pitt's brother, I guess. And he had like a huge mullet, sort of a small part, but uh, he's been in, you know, a good amount of stuff too. Uh, actually, he was in, uh, I think it's called Boiling Point, which is a Stephen Graham film about a chef that came out a few years ago. So they kind of reteamed for that. But um, yeah, I was thinking about how, like what this did for the people involved. And it certainly launched Guy Ritchie uh, well, I mean, Lockstock did that and, and it got him the money he needed for Snatch, but uh, Statham too. And, and but it, yeah, I think Stephen Graham is probably someone who came out the best from working on these. Uh, do you see anybody else who might have? Yeah, well, let's put it this way. I mean, he went from working with Guy Ritchie in these two movies, and then he ends up showing up in Gangs in New York. So if working in, with these Guy Ritchie movies put him on Scorsese's radar, I mean, that, that's kind of all you could ask for, right? That's kind of going from the minor leagues to, to the major leagues. So, yeah. um, so, so, that, so that in itself is pretty impressive. It shows that, that how his work stood out in, in Snatch. Yeah, I don't think it gets much better than that. Well, maybe Benicio Del Toro too, but I guess he'd been working. Uh... Yeah, the unusual suspects and... and that definitely put him on the map. So I think that was part of what brought him in, into this world too, which is why they, they were more than happy to take him in because he was riding high at that moment too. But that's what's great. I mean, you had, that's what was great about this period of time too, where you have actors with well-known names, but they really like doing weird, small parts. If they could get them, they would just kind of do whatever. And Del Toro is very much like that too, which is what makes them perfect for this movie. Yeah, it really shows you how actors are in it for the work and and, wanting to work with people even if they're not you know a big name or in a big studio yet they they really just want to have that experience and and be pushed by someone who's up and coming and, and guy Ritchie was certainly that and um <clears throat> this is kind of the tail end of the 90s and some of those big directors breaking out so uh yeah i think there's a lot of that but it it's uh what a good time to be uh, a filmmaker and an actor because you, you have all these names to pick from who are sort of uh, untapped resources to date. That's very cool. Um, so I wasn't sure when we were going to end up talking about the, the elephant in the room 
so to speak, which is is Madonna. Like, <laughs> yeah, we want to get into the whole uh, People Magazine Us Weekly kind of world, but it, it is important to mention this in Guy Ritchie's arc since we're talking about these two movies. And after Snatch, he's in a really good place. And you'd mentioned before how you would have loved to have seen more movies in this world. Uh, I've seen an interview recently where he kind of lamented that he didn't make more movies in in the world of Snatch because he really enjoyed writing it. He had a good time making it. Clearly, he had a nice troop of people that he could work with. Um, and he said there were definitely more stories in that world. But you know, this is where we have to talk about the fact that he meets Madonna in 99. Um, you know, he marries her in 2000. And interesting side note, I had read that the most expensive thing in Snatch, which had a budget of like 10 million, was it cost the like a million dollars to license the song Lucky Star mm-hmm. to use in the movie, which already shows you that he's starting to kind of lose his mind a little bit. <laughs> um, and now again, I don't speak about anybody's relationships and, and you know nothing to say about that. But in terms of movie making, Madonna is a black hole. Uh, one of the greatest pop stars that has ever lived, but her movie making until Evita is pretty much a black hole. And she yeah. sucked Guy Ritchie into this black hole. And the only movie he makes between 2000 and 2005 is Swept Away, which Oof. he makes as a starring vehicle for Madonna because he wants to make her, he wants to revive her movie career. And she ends up ruining his for about five years. Uh, so that's just a huge missed opportunity where he's riding high and there are so many things he could have done, so many places he probably could have gone off of Snatch. But he uses his, uh, you know, we call it the blank check or we, he, he uses his clout in that moment to get a movie made with his wife, which is probably fine for him in terms of his marriage, terrible in terms of his career. Um, and then he goes back and his return to form is Revolver, and he brings back Jason Statham. And it kind of goes back to his security blanket, I guess you could say, and makes Revolver with Jason Statham, uh, who has hair. It must be said, he's got hair in Revolver as well. Oh, I don't think I've ever yeah. seen it. Yeah, he's, I've, I've seen it. it it's, and it's not a very good movie. It's okay. It's actually pretty dark. Uh, you know, It's a pretty dark revenge movie. Uh, it's got Ray Liotta in it. It's got some good performances, not his best work, but it's interesting. It's a, it's a fine watch, but it's kind of forgettable after you see it. But this, I think, kind of helps him right his ship a little bit to get back to doing what he does. It reintroduces him to the world that he had done in his first two movies. But, um, but yeah, it, it's hard not to think about the what might have been between 2000 and 2005, where he spends all his capital working on Madonna projects. That's interesting. It's, it's a bit of a curse, I guess. I don't know. Um, but uh, the same can be said for the cinematographer, Tim Maurice Jones, who we just mentioned photographed these films. He would actually go on to shoot some Madonna projects uh, around that same time. And he, his trajectory lands him at photographing The Expendables 4. So uh, it, it's hard to say whether his career was tainted by Madonna or not, but uh, follows a similar trajectory, I guess. Ouch. And I guess you could say that it, it, it is possible during that period of time that Guy Ritchie kind of loses steam and Matthew Vaughn ends up kind Takes of over. 
starting to ascend. So, you know, we didn't mention this before, but it turns out that Matthew Vaughn, who wanted to be a director, kick ass, and his new movie Argyle just came out a few weeks ago. Um, so he's become well-known in making these splashy, high-concept, crazy action movies, The Kingsman. Uh, he started out, they met early on and became friends because they were both trying to break into the movie business. And Matthew Vaughn decides to kind of take a producing route for a little while to break in, whereas Guy Ritchie decides to write and direct. And he supports Guy Ritchie's first two projects. Uh, Matthew Vaughn directed, had produced one movie before Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which no one really saw, and I don't even remember the name of, so it doesn't matter. But um, he ends up producing Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, makes both of them a decent amount of money and puts them on the map, so to speak. Then Matthew Vaughn comes back and produces Snatch. And that sets them both off into a, another level of their careers. And then a few years down the road, Matthew Vaughn ends up moving into to directing and writing. He really picks up the baton from Guy Ritchie in this world and puts a, a sort of a glossy coat on it. Um, he, he's very much with the things he makes, uh, his first film was that he directed was Layer Cake, which is very much akin to these films, uh, the Daniel Craig movie from- And introduces uh, us to Daniel Craig, which put Daniel Craig yeah. on the map, which leads to him getting Bond, which is interesting, so. And, and I'm sure there was talk of Guy Ritchie directing Bond for a while. So I think all, perhaps all of the British uh, filmmakers are somehow intertwined like a Guy Ritchie script. But uh, yeah, Matthew Vaughn, who, by the way, is in uh, Lockstock. He's the guy in the car who dog pulls out at the end and calls him a yuppie. Uh, that's a little cameo by Matthew Vaughn. Um, but he, yeah, it feels like he's sort of taken over in this this gangster world. Uh, I know Guy Ritchie's returned to it in recent years and has really sort of returned to form in a way, uh, maybe at a higher level, uh, maybe seemingly a little more influenced by Matthew Vaughn at that point. But um, when you when you think about this now, you think of Matthew Vaughn, um, the way you thought of Guy Ritchie in the late 90s and early 2000s. So it, it's kind of interesting how the two of them started out and, and went. Uh, I mean, Matthew Vaughn doesn't, as far as I know, have that Madonna connection. So maybe that's why he was able to ascend beyond uh that's possible uh, but to guy Ritchie's credit you know matthew vaughn kind of stays in his wheelhouse where you look at everything he's done they're all action movies of a similar mm -hmm. thing right whereas you know guy Ritchie really starts to expand what he does uh you know he ends up directing king arthur he ends up directing aladdin which again <laughs> never happens but but credit to him for for taking on a Disney musical, which is very out of his wheelhouse. Uh, so, and then he ends up directing The Covenant, which came out, I think, last year, which is a war movie. So I think he, he's more accomplished probably as a filmmaker and, and is more comfortable switching genres where it seems like Matthew Vaughn knows what he does well and is just sticking with it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I guess, you know, the, the, you could go either route. I mean, you can keep making the thing that that uh you know how to make and and succeed or you can get risky yeah and i uh, want to mention this because i brought it up briefly at the very beginning when i was talking about kevin smith but um 
something else that, that Guy Ritchie talked about is that after he made Lockstock, he was offered a bunch of movies um, from studios because clearly he was someone that, that uh, was on the radar of, of a lot of places. A, a lot of uh, movie studios were interested in what he was doing. So he said he was offered lots of different movies and some of them had really big budgets, but he didn't want to do something with 50 million, $100 million budget because he didn't necessarily feel like he was ready for that. Mm -hmm. And making Snatch, which was something he was comfortable with just on a larger scale, was something that he felt that he could nail and, and really knock out of the park. And rather than taking on something that he thought might be big for him in the moment, he, started, he wanted to stay a little bit smaller and, and grow into it. And, and I think that that's a really intelligent move on his part. I think it shows a lot of self-awareness. Uh, clearly, he ends up directing much bigger movies down the road and has shown that he can handle all of this. But he wanted to kind of make sure that he had the nuts and bolts of what he needed to do down immediately before he moved on to something larger, which is probably smart. Because we've seen a lot of directors bite off more than they can chew and end up drowning under, under the weight of what they're working on. So it was it was an interesting thing to hear him say. And you think about it, it's a pretty intelligent move on his part. Yeah, the budgets are not that far off. I think uh, Lockstock was something like 1.25 million uh, all, in, all in all. And uh, Snatch was like seven and a half million. So it's not a I big leap. closer to 10, that it was more was like it? 10 million, but that's, but that's fair. But even you know seven times the budget or 10 times the budget, mm -hmm. I, I guess at that time could make all the difference because they, they are they couldn't look more different in in terms of the way they're shot and and the way that they look. So uh, that little bit of money really and that, and that again shows that he can make a movie for ten million look like a movie made fifty million uh, is, is a testament to the people that were working on that project. It really is. They did a lot with what they had and. I think everybody involved in Snatch in particular, uh, you know, you take that money and you bring in the people who are, are going to give you the best result. And and I think that they they did a great job. Uh, I wonder how much they spent on music because the music in both of these films is pretty great and there's a lot of it. Yeah, that, that, that is an excellent point that, I mean, someone coming from making music videos, um, music plays a very big part in these movies. Uh, especially Lockstock, where almost every scene that introduces someone has a song in a way that associates you or, or makes you associate these songs with these particular characters. It's something he does a little bit in Snatch as well, but not as much. I mean, Lockstock is very music-reliant, I think, in terms of putting you in the moment of the movie. Uh, and I had forgotten about that, but, but it's very important to him. And these apparently were just songs that he really loved. If these were all songs that he had running in his head, almost like a jukebox, and just decided to put them in the movie because they were just songs that he really liked and, and wanted to use. So I don't know if he got a break on some of them because some of them were obscure British bands and uh, not necessarily the biggest artists in the world. So, so maybe he got a deal, but who can say? Well, they, they all fit perfectly. I mean, I, I think that the music really is such an important part of these films. I mean, that... It just stands out so much um, to the point where I was like humming some of the songs for like two days because they just kind of stuck in my head. And uh, really, yeah, I mean, again, that's 
very Tarantino-esque, um, which is also Scorsese-esque. So, yeah. well, in a different uh, podcast, I, I discussed how, in my mind, Scorsese was almost the first person to, to really do that, to use uh, music as opposed to score as, as the driving force in the movie. Uh, I, I can't remember anyone that had done it before him. And, and Goodfellas always stands out in my mind, of course. But you know, Tarantino takes that in the 90s. But I do think that a lot of it has to do with music video directors becoming directors as well. They, they start to not only bring a different visual style, but the idea of using music as opposed to score to propel your movie. Uh, you start seeing that a lot in the, from the mid-90s on. Um, and, and again, some people like it, some people don't. I think it adds a, a certain energy. It's definitely a different energy. And, and I used correctly, it's it's a wonderful tool to really put you in time and place or to, to bring a certain level of emotion to the scene. So uh, I really liked it. Yeah, it, I mean, it's one of many elements that are so essential to making these films what they are. And then another one is the editing. Um, Lockstock, they're, they're edited, uh, not the same way, but they, they do have a very similar look to them and uh, edited by two different people. But Niven Howie in particular, who edited Lockstock, also comes from a music video background. So you really just have <laughs> what's essentially a music video on the big screen. Um, it's pretty interesting uh, and, and really couldn't be more of its time, I, I don't think, uh, because of that. So it, it's really cool. I mean, I love it. Yeah, I won't. I won't lie. I definitely felt a little bit nostalgic as I was watching Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, uh, pining for those uh, late '90s movies. That was that was a good time. That was a good time to to be a movie lover. It really was. Um, I think you know. I think we've covered these pretty well, but I, I think we should probably wrap up our our Statham month with uh, a little bit of what we've learned along the way. Um, it's been really interesting to go down this road with Jason Statham. I, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, oh, before I say that, did you did you have anything else about these films that you wanted to add? There was one thing that I wanted to add that I think is important uh, mm -hmm. in terms of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I had forgotten that Sting was in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. That's and, right. And it's really important that, that Sting is in the movie because I think not only does him being in the movie lend a certain credibility to it for guy Ritchie, it's almost like a cosign mm -hmm. but part of the reason sting is in it is because sting's wife trudy styler was one of the producers of the movie so she financed. Oh. so i mean that connection is huge for him and i think i don't want to say that without them the movie might not have been made but i do think it's important to mention that that was probably very important in helping get it off the ground uh to have someone as huge as as sting is to be involved and his wife is no slouch either uh in, in terms of what she does behind the scenes so so, so that that's just a note that i think is important to mention yeah and i think uh as far as clout bringing clout to the film to get it made um vinnie jones too it should be mentioned was was a pro footballer who played for a bunch of teams in england so he was very well known uh sort of notorious for <laughs> grabbing some guy's balls on the on the pitch. Uh, I think that's kind of how he became famous as a footballer, but um, bringing his name to these films, uh, just like Sting, I think uh, probably gave it a lot of gravitas that it might not have had otherwise. 
that's how it works. You know, that you, you have to have value added to get something made. That's my, that was my last note on this. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I guess we can start to wrap up Jason's date the month, which has been a really good time for us. I hope it was a good time for people listening, but it was uh, really fun to go back and look at five movies that are, are turn, turns out that watching these five movies gave me a much greater appreciation of the depths of Jason Statham. Absolutely. Same. It's, you know, I, I've been thinking about it and I, I almost feel he's gone a Tom Cruise route where he started out doing these interesting, very character driven roles. And then he moved on to this blockbuster kind of uh, popcorn action flick persona. Um, and I don't know what that what that's about. I mean, I guess it's more money. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, do you want to mention the, the, the salary difference? So maybe that will give you an indication of why he went that route. Oh, yeah. So for Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which was Statham's first film, he made $6,000. Um, and for The Beekeeper, which uh, at the time of recording here is still making a ton of money at the box office, it's really surprising. Um, he made $25 million. So between his first film and his most recent film, his pay increase was 41,567%. So that's a span of like 23, 24 years. Um, that's quite a pay increase and well-deserved after watching this stuff. Uh, I, I for sure think that he's, he's, he deserves every penny of it. Yeah, if I can make forty thousand dollars more, uh, punching people in the face—that—that that is the uh, <laughs> that Yeah, we are in the long wrong line of work, um, but yeah, it's really been interesting to see that progression. Um, and here and there, uh, he he does a few things that we didn't cover, like like London, for example, which is a really uh, low end drama with Jessica Biel. Um, and Chris Evans and uh, Spy, which we did talk about, which shows his comedy chops. Um, I thought he was great in that. I did mention in our episode that it, it seemed like some of his dialogue was stilted. Um, and I guess that's from not having to do it too much because he does it really well in these Guy Ritchie films. So uh, it, yeah, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. I mean, I... Always yeah, and Statham's... I have to interrupt. Don't forget, we're talking about the, the various movies Statham has made. I mean, he made Ghost of Mars, which is a science fiction movie. That's a Carpenter and, film, yeah. Yeah, but he also made Romeo and Juliet, so he did an animated voice work. Is there, wow, is there nothing I forgot that, about that Statham can't do? You know, it, it's really been an eye-opening month. Um, I'd always liked Statham, but I, I hadn't really given too much thought to his filmography or or his performances and uh yeah i just have a real appreciation for him now and um, i think his only criteria for a movie is that there cannot be more than four words in the title it's four words or less <laughs> now four words or less he's in but other than yeah. that i feel like uh he'll, he'll do almost anything so and and he, from looking at all these movies it shows that he didn't really handle any kind of film but clearly he seems to enjoy the action movie and everyone seems to enjoy him in it so 
you know, give people what they want. It'll be interesting to go back and listen to the introduction to this month, because um, I kind of remember talking about him as being a bit of a one-trick pony, uh, with really having uh, no memory of these films in particular and and some of the things that came after them. So uh, I, I kind of put my foot in my mouth there. And yeah, you, you and me both, we we apologize to Jason Statham. We we were wrong. It turns out he made a lot of interesting, diverse movies. And uh, yep. he, he can definitely do more than one thing. He just happens to be really good at one thing over the rest. I, I'm so glad we did this. This this was our first month of podcasts, and we chose Jason Statham. And when I told people that, they're like, what? Why would that be how you launch this show? And it got me second-guessing it a little bit. But uh, four episodes in, I, I'm loving it. I'm really happy that we did it because what a great way to start. I mean, we're, we're learning uh, you know, about Jason Statham. We've learned things along the way. So that's all you can ask for from a show. And and uh, I hope other people have learned as well. But uh, I know I did for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most important thing coming out of something like this is you come out with a list of movies that you might want to check out or movies that you hadn't seen in a while that you want to revisit. That's what we were trying to do for each other and what we're trying to do for people that are listening just to, to make you go back and, and look at some things that you may have never seen or forgotten about, which are worth revisiting. And we have a lot of uh, good things planned for the rest of the year and beyond. So uh, we hope everybody keeps listening. Um, did you have any parting words, Mike? I didn't. I'll just add that uh, I had as much fun as you did. And I actually want to go back and watch a couple more Jason Statham movies that I didn't get to watch at this point. So. I'm, I'm sticking with Statham. I, I agree. There are quite a few things that I want to revisit as well. So uh, I think that's what the next few weeks will be. Um, all right. Well, that's it for our first month and our first topic. We'll be back next week with a new one, uh, which we're very excited about. So be sure to join us uh, to find out what it is. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, we are Movie Throwdown Pod on all the social media and we're at patreon.com slash movie throwdown pod if you want to email us surprise it's movie throwdown pod at gmail.com so thanks so much mike thanks so much everybody for joining us and we will see you next week with a brand new month-long subject so long